Greetings one and all and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. I'm your host, Jeremy Walker, and I'm here to take you through this week's featured sermon, which is number 1049 in the sequence. The title is Intercessory Prayer, and the text is Psalm 141 and verse 5. We'll come back to that text in a moment, just to put it in its context. We're reading from Sermon 1046 to 1052 this week. If you're a regular, you'll know that each week we read day by day through the published sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Then we choose a featured sermon for those who are only able in all weeks or any week just to read the one. And this week it's 1049. Then you can join us again next week at 1053 to 1059 when our featured sermon is 1057 on untrodden ways. Now, if you want to find out more, you can track us down at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can also uh, sign up for a newsletter. You can order a a book of the first volume of Spurgeon's sermons, uh, the featured sermons that we've chosen, each of them introduced on amazon.co.uk and amazon.com. And you can also find a DVD through Media Gratii of a documentary on the life and ministry of Spurgeon called Through the Eyes of Spurgeon. Now, our point in some of these things is not simply to exalt or elevate the man, but to learn from him about the the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, a man who is preeminently gifted for this work. That brings us back to this sermon that was delivered on the 5th of May in 1872 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington. As I just mentioned, the text is Psalm 141 and verse 5. And Spurgeon begins by acknowledging that this is a difficult passage. He's going to simply take it then in the way that it's uh, translated in the King James Version or the Authorised Version of the Bible for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. And he tells the people he recognises the difficulty, but he doesn't want to go into the various interpretations which have been given because that's not what he's aiming at. He wants simply to be content with this version and to turn it in two very simple directions. First is the high duty of intercession with regard to the saints, and then that same duty of intercession with regard to sinners. Now, the first part of the sermon, the first uh, main heading, uh, the duty of intercession with regard to saints, that's where he spends the bulk of his time. But I I think the the second part is really where he uh, pours out the most of his energies. So there's uh, a shift in the balance, both in terms of the amount of time spent, but also with regard to the amount of energy invested. Uh, It's interesting to trace how that happens. It's not that there's a lack of energy or that he simply uh, skates over the second point. It's not that there's a lack of energy in the first point or that there's a a, a shallowness in the second point, but rather that uh, there's a, a sort of a shift from one place to the other in terms of uh, what the concentration is. So then, first of all, the duty of intercession for the people of God. And to arrange our thoughts in some order, he says, we'll take for our first keynote the word obligation. 
And as we've often said, you can almost see now the, the notes in front of him. Uh, you've got the headings sketched out and then you've got these keywords and perhaps some key headings or subheadings underneath that. But obligation is the first one. It's incumbent upon every child of God to pray for the rest of the sacred family. Doesn't nature itself teach us this? It says the new nature teaches us this. Did you not find, my brothers, as soon as you were yourselves possessors of divine life, that you began without any exhortation to pray for others? Your very first believing cries began with, Our Father which art in heaven, and so included others besides yourself. Among the earliest prayers which a renewed heart offers will be one for the man through whose agency it was brought to Jesus. No new convert forgets to pray for the minister who was the instrument of his conversion. And then he says that the Christian people who have at any time conversed with that convert, who have ministered to his comfort or instruction, will be sure to obtain a share in his prayers, for a renewed heart is a tenderly grateful heart, and a man is not born again from above who feels no thankfulness to earnest friends below. So Spurgeon contends it's a natural instinct of the newborn believer to begin to intercede for others, and this instinct continues with him throughout life. It's one of the things that he must do. It's a pleasure to him to do it. It would be impossible for him utterly to cease from it, for the indwelling spirit in his bosom makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And so, as an instinct of the heaven-born nature, so it is a law of the elect household. This is still under the general title of obligation. How shall a man claim that he loves his brother if he never intercedes with God for him? Can I live continually with my fellow believers and see their sorrows and never cry to God on their behalf? Can I observe their poverty, their tribulation, their temptation, their heaviness of heart, and yet forget them in my supplications? Can I see their work of faith and labour of love and never implore a blessing upon them? Can I wrap up myself within myself and be indifferent to the case of those who are my brothers in Christ Jesus? Impossible, says Spurgeon. Every bee in the hive of the church should bring its own share of this honey to the common store. As all the rootlets of a tree traverse the earth in search of nutriment and all suck in provision for the benefit of all, so should each believer with open mouth of prayer search out and drink in spiritual blessings for the benefit of the whole church. So you're seeing the structure here under the general uh, duty of intercession for the people of God, obligation, obligation from nature itself, the new nature, obligation from the, the law of God for the elect household. Now, obligation because of a vital union among believers, a oneness of a very intimate kind. No man lives to himself in the church of God and no man dies to himself. When a believer grows in grace, he's enriched not for himself alone. The Christian community has increased its spiritual wealth by his gains. And so, Intercession, he says, should throb like a pulse through the whole body, causing every living member to feel the sacred impulse. Intercession is one of the least things which we can do, and yet it's one of the greatest. Let us not be slack in it. And then this very pointed phrase, a prayerless church member is a hindrance. He's in the body like a rotting bone or a decayed tooth. And before long, since he doesn't contribute to the benefit of his brothers, he will become a danger and a sorrow to them. What kind of part do you play in the body of Christ? Then here's another argument for obligation. 
that we ourselves owe much to the prayers of others. If by the way of prayer you've received a blessing, you show your gratitude then by praying for others. You endeavour to confer the blessing in the same way as you received it. I reckon, brothers, says the preacher, that the more of prayers I have, the wealthier I am in real riches, in that form of personal estate which is better than gold and silver. An old Puritan remarks that when a man thrives in business, he sets many hands to work for him. And, says he, when a man grows in usefulness, he brings many souls to pray for him, and so his business is carried on. I still remember a dear older saint, a retired minister, who in conversation with me, I'd known him for a number of years, but now he was no longer able to serve in the way to which he'd been accustomed. And he simply said, brother, you, you keep working and we will pray for you. And I don't think anybody can tell me something uh, more, more blessed than that. Did a mother's prayers bring you to Christ? Asked Spurgeon. Then, dear young mother, send up your entreaties to the Lord for your dear little one. Did a father's supplications lead to your salvation? Then, young man, uphold your father with your constant prayers and so enrich his latter days. Freely you've received, freely give. Beloved brothers, you're not alive unto God. You don't have the instincts of the new life if you do not intercede for the household of faith. You have not the love which is of God, which is the sure sign of regeneration, if you forget intercession. You're unmindful of the debt you owe, and you're acting unworthily of your professed union with the Church of Christ if intercession be neglected by you. As with a trumpet call, I would arouse you, my brothers and sisters, to effectual earnest prayer for the family of the living God. Now, all that is the first key note under this general duty of intercession for the people of God. And here's this uh, very thoughtful structure. You've got the two main headings. Intercession for the people of God is the first one. Under that, there's a first key note, the word obligation. And under that, there's these various elements of obligation. We're taught it by the new nature. We're taught it by a law of the elect household. We're taught it by the vital union among believers. We're taught it by what we owe to the prayers of others. And then at the end of that section on obligation to intercede for the saints, there's this sort of summary sentence or two drawing those threads together. It's a very, very effective teaching principle. You, you've got these, uh, this good structure and this reiteration of his points and summation at, uh, at the, the end of each of the points, moving on to the next. And he does something similar. We've had obligation. Now we've got honour. It's an honour to be permitted to pray for the saints. Why? Because this brings us into the closest conceivable fellowship with the Lord Christ himself. In praying for the saints, we have actual present fellowship with our great high priest who intercedes within the veil. I say again, if I preach today, Christ is not preaching, he says, but if I pray, my voice harmonises with his. And so, beloved, if you'd be conformed in service to the Lord Jesus, the opportunity is ready to your hand. Be much in intercession for the saints. And then, what an honour it is that we, who so lately were beggars for ourselves at mercy's door, are now received so much into royal favour that we may venture to speak a word in the king's ear for others. Saints in intercession reach a place where angels cannot stand. Those holy beings rejoice over penitent sinners, but we do not read of their being admitted as suppliants for the saints. Yet we, imperfect as we are, have this favour, 
We're permitted to open our mouth before the Lord for the sick and for the tried, for the troubled and for the downcast, with the assurance that whatsoever we shall ask in prayer, believing, we shall receive. And then there's a a, a summary application really here. Avail yourselves of this honour. Make the most of this blessing. All over the world, place hunters are in abundance. Men of influence, having the ear of the authorities, are always pressed to make all possible use thereof. He says, basically, people love someone who's got the ear of someone with power. And yet, he says, despite the fact that in the world that's recognized, here am I having to stand here this morning and urging you, dear brothers, who have the ear of God, to actually exercise your choice prerogative. And he says, if no one else needs your prayers, I eagerly ask for a place in them. Brothers, pray for us, said an apostle. How much more may I say it? Having to minister daily in holy things, our responsibilities and needs are very great. Do not therefore forget us when it is well with you. Say a kind thing unto the prince for his servants and ask him to grant us more of his grace. And as a a pastor and preacher for myself and I think for any other such man, I would uh, add my amen to that a hundred times over. The kindest thing you can do for us is to pray for us, that we'd be holy men, that we would be uh, true men of God, that we would be faithful and fruitful, that we would be uh, gentle and useful, that we would be humble in our labors, and yet that the Lord would be pleased to make us uh, truly useful to those whom we serve. So do pray for your pastors. Pray for the servants of God who are giving themselves in particular ways to particular labours. So you've had obligation. That was honour. Now the word changes to excellence because intercessory prayer, that is praying on behalf of others, is a most excellent thing, first of all, because it benefits those who use it. First, it will suggest to you to know your brothers. This is one of the useful things for us in interceding for others. You cannot pray well for those you know nothing about. You will not therefore go in and out of the assembly not knowing the person who sits next to you in the pew, but you will inquire how the brothers fare. And when you hear of anyone being in distress of mind or body or estate, you'll be ready to take notice of that in order that you may offer prayer on his account. And then there will be in you a sympathetic knowledge of your brothers. Paul tells us to know them that labour among us and are over us in the Lord. And I wish all church members did know more of their pastor's struggles and sorrows and joys, that they might have more sympathy with him. And the same is true of the rest of the brothers. The more you know and sympathise, the better will your prayer be. And because you will need to know in order to intercede, therefore I call intercession an excellent exercise. So the first excellent benefit of intercessory prayer for those who engage in it is that it brings us to know one another. Are you engaged with the people with whom you sit or do you you try and keep yourself remote? I know pastors who seem to think it's their job to float into the pulpit, deliver some disquisition from the scriptures and then they disappear again and there's no engagement with God's people. And then there are those who sometimes you think, have you got a secret exit from the building? You never seem to spend time talking with your brothers and sisters, just the one or two of them, let alone the more of them. Know your brothers and then you'll be able to pray and and needing to pray is a prompt to know them. Then 
Very, very important. Earnest intercession will be sure to bring love with it. I do not believe you can hate a man for whom you habitually pray. If you dislike any brother Christian, pray for him doubly, not only for his sake but for your own, that you may be cured of prejudice and saved from all unkind feeling. Remember the old story of the man who waited on his pastor to tell him that he could not enjoy his preaching. The minister wisely said, My dear brother, before we talk that matter over, let's pray together. And after they'd both prayed, the complainant found he had nothing to say except to confess that he himself had been very negligent in prayer for his pastor, and he laid his not profiting to that account. I ascribe want of brotherly love to the decline of intercessory prayer. Pray for one another earnestly, habitually, fervently, and you'll knit your hearts together in love as the heart of one man. This is the cement of fair colours in which the stones of the church should be laid if they are to be compact together. I, I've received and I have given the counsel that if you, if you want to do someone good, you pray for them. If you're having difficulties with somebody, you pray for them. If you're frustrated or disappointed by somebody, pray for them. In fact, it might be a good principle for us if we're thinking of our brothers and sisters in a particular congregation. Every time we're tempted to complain, how about we intercede? And not only then might our attitude toward them change, but so may be the cause of whatever difficulty we're having. And then he says, not only will your sympathy grow and your love grow, but you'll then have kinder judgments concerning one another. We think our children beautiful because they're our own and have a place in our heart. And in the same way, we're quick to perceive any admirable traits of character which may exist in those for whom we intercede. And we're willing to suggest extenuations for the failings of their dispositions. That is, we put everything in the best light. Prayer then is a wondrous blender of hearts and a mighty creator of love. Then intercessory prayer is effective in fostering watchfulness. If you observe others with a captious eye, you censure them eagerly and go from house to house to spread the ill savour industriously, your unhallowed course of action will breed self-righteousness in yourself. But if you go to the Lord with sorrow about all misdeeds of brothers and importunately seek the restoration of the erring, you will foster in your own heart tenderness of feeling and watchfulness against sin. So when you see others struggling and sinning, when you're praying for them, it will prompt you to be careful with regard to your own soul. He says, I don't have time to talk about more. Isn't it wonderful to think that Spurgeon has more that he could have said about some of these topics, but he wants us to understand it's one of the holiest, healthiest and most heavenly exercises in which a devout man can possibly be occupied. And he says now, and again, here you're moving on into real sort of pressing home. Do you not think, dear brothers, that if we were each one required upon the spot to give an account of his attention to this excellent duty of intercessory prayer, we should most of us need to be ashamed? May I venture to put the question to every Christian here, have you rendered to God and his church your fair proportion of intercessory prayer? And if that was a, a question that hit home in 1872, I think it hit, hits home just as much today. This is how he asks it. 
Have we prayed enough? I give you space and make a pause in which you may put the question. I'll give you my own answer. I am clear as to my duty to this church in the matter of preaching, for I have not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. If I could learn to preach better, I would gladly do so. I am conscious of my failures, but I have served you heartily and faithfully before God in this pulpit. But I cannot say so of my intercessions. I have many confessions to make to God of shortcomings in that department, and I am afraid that a great number of my fellow workers here must plead guilty to the same indictment. I don't think I know a single minister who would say that he has prayed as he wished he had prayed, that he had prayed enough. And I don't think Spurgeon's trying to measure out a certain number of minutes or hours there, but has he given himself to prayer as he should have done? Elders and deacons of this church, he asks, are you clear in the matter of intercession? Some men among us may be without blame in this business, but I am afraid that the most of us have attended to other duties far beyond the proportion in which we've attended to this. We have prayed in public at the prayer meetings, and we've not forgotten supplication for the saints at the family altar. Neither, I trust, is it unknown in our private devotions. But still, if we had prayed for our brothers ten times as much, or even a hundred times as much, we should not have gone too far. We stand up sometimes on the public platform and we charge the church of God with growing cold. Let's ask ourselves the question, have we by our prayers added to her heat? Have we pleaded for her revival? We find fault with the missionary societies because such slender results are apparent. Do we pray for missions as we should? I hear a mournful complaint about the present and rising race of preachers. Have we interceded for students and for pastors as we should? I hear people speak of Christians as either worldly, superficial or proud. Have you prayed them out of their worldliness and pride? May it not be that you would have done far better if you'd prayed for them than found fault with them. Aye, and may not the errors you see in them be in a considerable measure traceable to the neglect of the office of intercession by yourself. Oh, let us have done with murmurings and complainings, criticisms and finding fault, and take the whole of it up to the mercy seat, he cries. For if half the breath that's vainly spent in censorious complaints were turned into intercession, there would be much more holiness in the church." And you might pick up a, a, a half quote there of a hymn by William Cooper, what various hindrances we meet in coming to a mercy seat, yet who that knows the worth of prayer but wishes to be often there. At the end of that hymn, Cooper says, were half the breath thus vainly spent, that's what Spurgeon's drawing on, to heaven in supplication sent, your cheerful song would oftener be, hear what the Lord has done for me. And now he's got his fourth key word. Remember, we've had obligation, we've had honour, then we've had excellence, and now we've got extent. David says in the text, Yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. And his meaning is this, If any of the saints of God should by their fidelity to his soul displease him, he would nevertheless pray for them. This is the point where you might realise, Oh, hang on, yes, he had a text, didn't he? Uh, and this is, in some ways, something that Spurgeon delights to do, unpacking uh, the, the ideas of things. Um, sometimes you, he, he begins with and works from the text, and it's constantly tied into it. At other times, he sort of explores the idea that comes from the text and returns to it, and that's what he's doing here. 
Brothers, he says, we're not to confine our prayers to those who please us in their mode of addressing us, but we are to pray lovingly for those who are too sharp, too harsh, too cutting in their remarks. Suppose they should be so severe as to grieve our spirits. Suppose their rebukes appear to be uncalled for, injurious and unjust. We are still bound to pray for them. He goes on. If some brother has crushed your spirit and wounded you so that to think of him causes you pain. And that's that's a, a painful present experience for many of God's people and, and often particularly for God's preachers and pastors. Spurgeon says, never mind. The best cure for the wound is to go to God in prayer and pour out your soul for him. Ask the Lord to give him. Who's he talking about? To the person who's crushed your spirit. Ask the Lord to give that man, that woman, a great blessing and to make him a better Christian, to fill him full of divine love. And then when you see him improved, you will either come to think that you made a mistake in judging what he said and took wrongly what he meant to do you good, or else you'll find that he will come to you and will say, I was in the wrong, my brother. Or if he does not confess that in words, he will by extra kindness to you acknowledge it in his deeds. And then, brothers, if ever we find a fellow Christian in a calamity, then we are to pray for him doubly. Men of the world, he says, men of the world leave their companions when they get into trouble as the herd leave the wounded deer, but not the believer. Especially if a brother in Christ should be slandered, we're bound to stand by him. Too many follow the bad habit of getting right out of the way of a man who is traduced. Someone has thrown a handful of mud at a professed Christian. Let us clear the coast, for the mud may light upon us too. That's the way that cowards speak, says Spurgeon, but not us. No, brother, if you belong to the army of Emmanuel and our persecuted brothers done no wrong, let us stand or fall by him. That would transform a lot of the way that we engage uh, in in the world and uh, perhaps online with regard to brothers and sisters. Let's pray our brothers out of their troubles and not desert them. And if that prayer should be long before it gets an answer, let's persevere in importunity, saying with David, yet my prayer shall be in their calamities. Now, he says, I have not got any more time to deal with this, but I beseech you, unless you're traitors to Christ, if you be members of the true unity, if your souls are knit together by the Holy Ghost, Wrestle much for one another and do not let the covenant angel go till a blessing shall come to the whole house of God and thence flow into the world at large. Now that's the first point alone of the sermon. And we've said that we've got this main heading, then we've got these subheadings, the obligation of intercessory prayer, the honour of it, the excellence of it and the extent of it. And in each of those, Spurgeon breaks down what he means by those key words and then brings us back with summaries and applications. The bulk of the material is in that first point, but it seems now with with little time left that he, as it were, pours all his remaining energies into the second brief point, which is the high office of intercession for sinners. And he himself says, upon this I shall speak briefly, but I trust earnestly. What has been our crown as a church? It's not been our wealth, for in that we don't excel. It's not been our learning. We don't make any show of that. It's not been our tasteful services, the beauty of our music and the sweetness of our chanting. No, we don't care about such things, but cultivate simplicity. 
our crown has been this one thing, that if there's been a church in Christendom which has given itself to winning souls, this church has done so. Our ministry has aimed always at this, the plucking of the brands from burning, the bringing of sinners out of darkness into marvellous light. And I do you nothing but simple justice, my brothers, when I say that by far the larger part of this church is really alive for soul winning. What a glorious testimony to the spiritual vitality of the tabernacle congregation at that time. And so he's stirring us up, stirring them up, and I hope by extension us to be praying, interceding for sinners. Pray, why? For this is the most essential thing to do. What can you and I alone do in the conversion of a man? We cannot change his heart. We cannot put life in him. We might as well think to create a soul within the ribs of death. It's God's work to regenerate souls. What then? If I am to be his instrument in doing it, my very first action must be to fall on my knees and pray, O God, work with me. And then he says that kind of intercessory prayer will fit you or equip you for becoming God's instrument. If I pray for a person's conversion, especially singling someone out, then my heart gets warmed into love to that individual as I think over his position and condition in prayer. And then that instructs me, that helps me, it prompts me. If we wish to send a man to college to make him a good helper to troubled hearts, says Spurgeon, we should send him to the college of all prayer, for for intercession is the mode to become wise in winning souls. Is that why we don't see many conversions? Because we haven't given ourselves to intercession on behalf of individuals and families and groups. Then he says, prayer will have this effect upon you, that you will go to work hopefully. Believe, he pleads, that as long as a man lives in this world, there are possibilities of grace for him. Take him in your arms before God in prayer, and when you begin to pray for him, you'll feel that there's hope, and you'll afterwards converse with him in a hopeful and perhaps believing manner. I do not believe a man was ever saved by another talking to him in a tone of despair, but the cheerful utterance of hopeful love wins its way. Believe that the hard heart may be broken, the blasphemer's tongue cleansed, the persecutor's mind changed, and that the rebel may yet obey Christ crucified and become a bright star in the heaven of God. And then some applications with which to conclude. This is a work in which all of you can aid. So encouraging for each one of us, especially if we're thinking, well, what can I do or how can I serve? And you've heard me say it, I think, on these podcasts before. The congregation I serve hears it over and over. Never tell me I can just pray. Spurgeon puts it this way. If I came to you this morning and said, brothers and sisters, the Lord's cause requires money, I know from long experience that you would do your best. But there are some of you who'd be compelled to reply, the necessities of my family do not permit my doing anything in that direction. But when we ask for intercession, no Christian can say, I cannot plead with God. When you hear of a missionary working anywhere abroad, pray for him, and so you become his co-worker. Beloved, some of you are often sickly in body, and during the weary night you get but little sleep. Do you know why the Lord keeps you awake? It is that while others of us are sleeping, you may be praying for us. God must have some to keep the night watches. He determines that a guard of prayer shall be set around his church all day and all night long. You are the sentries of the night watches. You cannot do anything else, but you can pray. And by praying, you can obtain a share in the noblest works of the church. 
So never say, I can just pray. I can only pray. What a sweet notion. You are the sentries of the night watches. Your your pains and your uh, disturbances of the night are the prompts to have you plead at the throne of grace. And he says again, David, by implication, tells us that some of those we pray for may not care for our prayers and may come into great calamities through our sins. And then is our time when we should be yet more earnest in intercession for them. You who seek after souls must know how to keep up the chase. Those who are short of breath in soul winning will never be successful. Follow them up, follow them up, follow them to the gates of the grave. Then again, the time may come when those who have been longest in yielding their hearts to Christ will repay us a thousandfold for all the efforts and supplications we may put forth. We do not expect that we shall get souls every day made into pools, but when it is so, then the church is rich indeed, for one pool is worth a thousand ordinary believers. These deep sea pearls are precious, the ones that are hard to find. These difficult cases may turn out to be pools, therefore be instant in season and out of season, praying for them till they be brought to Christ. And the one thing I want this morning is that my dear brothers and sisters in Christ should pledge themselves to be more importunate in prayer for sinners all around us. Plead with Jehovah, plead. He loves your prayers. Your intercessions are like the sweet incense upon the golden altar. Plead with him and you shall live to see a reward for your pleadings in the conversion of the sons of men. And then he closes with this little illustration. It was but a few days ago I saw four husbands who were converted to God, but their wives were left outside the church. And those four brothers, probably all here this morning, met together in prayer for their wives' conversion. And on the first communion Sabbath of last month, the four wives were brought in in answer to the prayers of the four husbands. Anything is possible. Everything is possible to him that believes. God help us to believe and to intercede. And then may he send his benediction for Christ's sake. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, pray. If you're not converted today, pray God to save you. If you've been saved, pray to God for others. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Pray for those who are still outside. If you have a moment, pray for for pastors and preachers that God would help them to be faithful and to be useful in the ministry of the word. Do pray for me if you have a moment that God would grant that I might be a a holy and a, a, a fruitful man of God. Pray for one another. Ask God for favor. Anything is possible everything is possible to him that believes. And I trust you'll come back again next time if the Lord spares us and enables us that we might look at Sermon 1057 on untrodden ways. But until then, may God bless us and keep us in a spirit of intercessory prayer. Amen.